We're going to finish talking about patent foramen ovale after cryptogenic stroke, and this is the second part. And I would suggest listening to the first part if you don't feel real comfortable with the topic of patent foramen ovale because some important points were made that will be built upon this time around. And so this lecture is going to focus much more on these trials that just recently came out in the September 14th, 2017 New England Journal of Medicine. And there are some things that bind all three of these trials together. Yes, one thing that binds them is they showed benefit to closing the paid informant ovale. How much benefit? Well, we'll get into that. But one of the things that binds them is they were looking at young patients. So no patient, not one, in any of the three trials had a patient older than the age of 60. Now, there is a pretty good reason why they did that. And the thing is, we have to remember that we probably only want to close a patent foramen ovale if we feel real comfortable that there is not another etiology for the so-called cryptogenic stroke. As we get older, we start developing a lot more risk factors for stroke, and that includes worsening atherosclerosis, right? So if you have a patent foramen ovale, but you also have 30% carotid atherosclerosis, even though that wouldn't be enough for us to consider carotid endarterectomy, are you sure you didn't break off a little bit of that atherosclerosis to cause the clot, and it wasn't the patent foramen ovale. So you get the idea that usually we are most worried about patent foramen ovale in younger patients that don't have any other explanation for why they may have had this stroke. And this point is really tough to overemphasize because I see this all the time, and I work with my residents that I work with on this issue frequently, which is, overcalling the etiology of something just because that's the something that you found, right? I mean, we all want to think and overthink as doctors. And man, there are days where I'm convinced I have ovarian cancer, right? But that's overcalling things. And so when we find something like a PFO, you don't want to immediately say that is the cause of the stroke. It is a potential factor that may have contributed to the stroke or been an etiology of stroke or maybe a complete red herring. And it sounds like with the Amplatzer PFO occluder, the Amplatzer is the type of device that's used at least in one of these trials, that they're asking in the label directions to make sure you've ruled out small vessel disease or lacunar stroke. They're saying to go ahead and get a transesophageal echocardiogram to rule out an intracardiac embolic source not related to a patent foramen ovale. Look for aortic arch atheroma. Look first for prolonged cardiac rhythm problems such as atrial fibrillation that you may not have picked up on. Look for arterial dissection and atherosclerosis, and vascular diseases. They even say, 
look for hypercoagulable states. Now, let me step back because you guys have heard me talk about hypercoagulable states. I don't think I am off my rocker and saying that one might be going a little bit too far. And I don't think I'm out on a limb saying that because I was just reading the Journal of Hospital Medicine from this month, September 2017, in which they did have an editorial in which they were talking about inpatient thrombophilia testing and at what expense. And one of the things, and I'll just say, the, I'll quote it, they said, the current American Heart Association and American Stroke Association guidelines state that usefulness of screening for hypercoagulable states in cryptogenic stroke patients is unknown. And they point out that aside from it being very costly, is that the tests are frequently inaccurate. And that's what I have always said is that, listen, if you find a hypercoagulable state, usually you knew that they had a hypercoagulable situation because they had a totally unprovoked venous thromboembolic event. And if they don't have a test showing a hypercoagulable state, we haven't found them all. And so don't think that they don't have a hypercoagulable condition. They still do. Lifetime anticoagulation treatment, by the way, in that situation. And that is why I think the clinical call is so much more important than doing that costly test, which can probably only screw you up in a lot of matters. I don't think in every matter. And so there are times when I do think getting an inpatient test for hypercoagulability is important. But I don't want to rehash that whole thing right now. The one thing I will say is that, remember, when we're talking about a patent form in Ovalley, how does that stroke happen? Well, we think some kind of clot breaks through that opening and then goes to the left side of the heart and then up to the brain. So our worry is that you either had a small or potentially a big DVT in that it broke off and now you've got a stroke. As opposed to if you didn't have a patent form in ovale, it would have just caused a pulmonary embolism, whether it be something clinically you would have picked up on or not, depending on the size. All right, so with the paid informant ovale, a lot of people have it. We talked about probably about 25% of the population has it. So just because you see it doesn't automatically mean it was the cause of a stroke. It's just like if someone says, I'm great in bed, maybe what they mean is that they love sleeping and they sleep really well, or it could mean other things. And a common theme throughout medicine is that every single doctor throughout time, at some point, has had a really fantastic bad idea. And that's why we have first do no harm as one of our mantras, right? And another thing we tend to do in medicine is we overgeneralize what we have studied. And so I think it's really important to remember if the patient is 60 years old or older, we don't have information and data that closing their PFO is going to be a benefit to them. In fact, if you look at these trials where I said 60 was the oldest age, really the majority of the patients were much younger than 60. Now, with that being said, if you are under the age of 60 and you had a stroke and you have a PFO and we can't find another cause for it, I think we need to at least be thinking about should we be closing that PFO while also planning 
on medical therapy, such as antiplatelet therapy and sometimes anticoagulation. All right, so moving on to the trials, I'm not going to break them down entirely. I think that would be way too boring, but I want to talk a little bit about each aspect of them. So the first trial, the CLOSE trial, C-L-O-S-E, again, all three of these trials in the September 14, 2017, New England Journal of Medicine, they looked at a pretty specific population. And not only were they younger, but they were looking at those with a PFO who had either an associated atrial septal aneurysm, and if you don't know what that means, please go back to the first lecture on PFO, or they had a substantial right-to-left interatrial shunt with their PFO. So not just patients with PFO alone. I want to make that clear in this trial. The other thing to make clear, which I think I said, is that they were using long-term antiplatelet therapy or they were using anticoagulant therapy, whether that was a vitamin K antagonist like Coumadin or a direct oral anticoagulant. But whether or not you got the PFO closed, they were using those medical therapies. And when they went for PFO closure, the effective rate of closure was about 93%, which is consistent with other trials. You don't usually get 100% closure in 100% of people. All right, now with that being said, how well did it work? So if you looked at five years, for every 20 patients they treated, they avoided one stroke by doing the PFO closure. So this wasn't miraculous by any means, but it worked. And if you're that one in 20 that gets to avoid a stroke, it means a lot to you. And it wasn't totally a free ride. So in the PFO closure group, there was an increased rate of new onset atrial fibrillation. Okay, so now that we're talking numbers a bit, let's move on to the RESPECT trial. And so with this one, it looked like over a period of five years, you needed to treat 42 patients to have a positive outcome of preventing the next stroke. Okay, the point being here again, we have to move away from where we were a month ago. And this is why I think this is potentially practice changing for most people where we would say, no, you don't need to get your PFO closed. Now we have to say, you can get your PFO closed and there's a small chance that you will be the one helped. You know, we watch all these news programs where people are getting into heated exchanges about something trivial very often. Sometimes they're important topics, but very often something trivial. And sometimes that's how I feel about some of these trials where there really is not a lot of data showing a tremendous help here. And at some point, we have to be thinking about how much does this stuff cost and is it really worth it? But in this situation, I think you can also make the argument that what we're really talking about is young patients if we do our job right. So if you're doing a PFO closure in your typical stroke patient, which are usually older patients, and so someone comes in at 75 and you find a PFO, I think you're doing the wrong thing. But if it's a young patient who's 30 and has a PFO and you really can't find another cause, then I think we have an argument that in this situation, 
There is such a long life and a stroke is so devastating that we do have to think about these numbers needed to treat and therefore the potential benefit in a young person who has a long life ahead of them. Now, I do want to say something more about this specific trial and some of the findings. And that's that they found in the different groups, whether they were medically treated or PFO closure with medical treatment, that there was higher future rates of pulmonary embolism and deep vein thrombosis. Happened to be a little bit higher in the PFO closure group, but I don't know how much we can read into that. What I do read into is, again, these probably are populations that have a small DVT or big DVT and a piece breaks off, goes through PFO into the brain. So one of the things I always do do when I find a PFO is I tend to get ultrasounds of the lower extremities even if I don't see obvious signs of lower extremity DVT clinically or in the history. It's a non-invasive test. It's relatively cheap compared to everything else we do. Not totally cheap, but if I do find a DVT, then it's a really easy answer in my mind as to whether to use antiplatelet or anticoagulation therapy. Subjectively, I don't feel like I find a lot of DVTs I have on occasion, and I often wonder if there was just a tiny little clot that broke off, which is most likely what has happened, gone through that PFO, caused a stroke, and we're just not going to find it on an ultrasound because it broke off. Or the clot was too small to find in the very first place. And as I go off on tangents, I'm realizing I forgot to talk about the third trial. So I just want to mention the GORE reduced trial. And in this trial, you had to treat 28 patients to prevent one stroke, but the trial was shorter. And so this was only over 24 months. And again, in this trial, they did see an increased rate of atrial fibrillation more commonly reported in the PFO closure group. Again, what these three trials are telling us is life is no longer simple with PFOs and cryptogenic stroke. You know, I feel like we're in this crowd and that one guy at the end of the meeting is saying like, hey, there's just one more thing I wanted to bring up when everybody wants to leave. And that's kind of what these trials did. It's complex now. With each passing year, medicine is moving farther and farther away from what's catching down now in regular life, which is this lifestyle of minimalism, this art of letting go. We're getting into these tiny, tiny minutiae that keep getting smaller and more complex and more difficult to understand. And there was a Norwegian adventurer, among other things that he did. His name was Thor Heyerdahl, but I think they pronounce it in his country like Thor Heyerdahl or something like that. But anyway, he once said, Progress is man's ability to complicate simplicity. And when it comes to modern medicine, man, oh man, are we making progress. All right, well, this is Dr. Gil Parat, and I will catch you on the next round.